their place in Mark chapter 12. We continue our study in the book of Mark. We are coming towards the end. We've got, um, let's see, 13, 14, 15, 16. We have four more chapters to go. Um, but we are literally in the last days of Jesus' ministry here in Mark chapter 12. It won't be long before they have him on the cross. And then, of course, uh, three days after that, he'll have risen again. And then uh, after his uh, time on earth, showing forth those many infallible proofs, he'll, uh, he'll go back to heaven. You'll remember last week that the ruling Jews assembled a team of Pharisees and Herodians, normally bitter enemies, um, and their goal is to catch Jesus in his words, to snare him, to take him down like you would in hunting. By the way, I got an eight-pointer hanging around my house, y'all. Something's got to be done. Something's got to be done. It's dangerous. Anyway, um, but to take him down like in hunting or to land a catch in fishing, they're trying to snare him. And if they can back Jesus into a corner, he will be unable to escape their best laid plan. And yet we see they were miserable failures. They were miserable failures. They had designated troublemakers. They had a disingenuous tribute. They had a designed trap. They had a discerning thinker in Jesus. And he took a deft turn, and he taught them two doctrines, Christians and government, regarding Christians and government, regarding the superiority of God. So tonight, we continue, and we see that um, there's a second attempt in this passage to catch Jesus in his words, and this time, it's led by the Sadducees. Now, this is a group, remember, who did not believe in anything supernatural outside of God himself. Uh, Paul summed it up in Acts 23, verse 8, For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, neither angel nor spirit, but the Pharisees confess both. They, they don't believe that anything happens at death, that you're just annihilated, that there's nothing after that, there's nothing going... By the way, if you've got a God who's supernatural but doesn't actually do anything supernatural, what kind of God is that? What a, what a silly way to look at things, but that's how they saw things. And they engaged Jesus in an absurd scenario. So let's, let's read that scenario, Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12, beginning verse um, 18. Then come unto him the Sadducees, which say there is no resurrection. And they asked him, saying, Master, Moses wrote unto us, if a man's brother die... And leave his wife behind him, and leave no children, that his brother should take up his wife and raise up seed unto his brother. Now, this is what's called a leveret marriage. And you do see the teaching regarding this in Deuteronomy 25, beginning in verse number 5. If brethren dwell together, and one of them die and have no child, the wife of the dead shall not, mar shall not marry without unto a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go in unto her and take her to him to wife and perform the duty of an husband's brother unto her. And it shall be that the firstborn which she beareth shall succeed in the name of his brother, which is dead, that his name be not put out of Israel." And if the man not like to take his brother's wife, then let his brother's wife go up to the gate and to the elders and say, My husband's brother refuseth to raise up unto his brother a name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of my husband's brother. 
Then the elders of the city shall call him and speak unto him. And if he stand to it and say, I like not to take her, then shall his brother's wife come unto him in the presence of the elders and loose his shoe from off its foot and spit in his face and shall answer and say, so shall it be done unto that man that will not build up his brother's house and his name shall be called in Israel, the house of him that hath his shoe loosed. So this is a big deal. Okay. Uh, the, the, um, um, uh, this, this scenario here involves leveret marriage. Back to verse number 20. Now there, now, there were seven brethren, and the first took a wife, and dying left no seed. And the second took her and died, neither left he any seed. And the third likewise. And the seven had her and left no seed. Last of all, the woman died also. In the resurrection, therefore, this resurrection they don't believe in, in the resurrection, therefore, when they shall rise, whose wife shall she be of them? For the seven had her to wife. And Jesus answering said unto them, Do ye not therefore err, because ye know not the Scriptures, neither the power of God? For when they shall rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are as the angels which are in heaven. And as touching the dead that they rise, have ye not read in the book of Moses, how in the bush God spake unto him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? He is not the God of the dead, but, of the, God, but the God of the living." You therefore do greatly err. They maintained that there was no life after death. Now, the traditional Pharisaic belief was that a Jew, when he would die, would renew his, his normal routine and family structure in the afterlife. That, that he would die and he would go into the afterlife and then his wife would go over and his kids would go over and they would resume their, their familiar life in the afterlife. Now, we know that's not the case, but that's how the Pharisees viewed it, that they would just pick up where they left off. The Sadducees maintaining there was no resurrection or anything supernatural for that matter because they wrongly concluded that the Torah, which is the only thing they would refer to as the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, they wrongly concluded that there was no reference to any of those things in the Torah. So they present Jesus with a scenario that would likely never occur in real life. Don't you love it when people give you a scenario to argue against your faith, a scenario that never happens? Well, what if this and this and this happens over here and this happens over here? Then what do you do with that? That doesn't happen. It shows that the argument is not in good faith. But it's, it's evident that this was something that the Sadducees would use in their debates with the, with the Pharisees. And the Pharisees apparently weren't very good at answering it because they kept using it. And they used it on Jesus. They present Jesus with this scenario, a leveret marriage times six. Now think about this for a second. It's conceivable that a man would have a brother who was not married, that man dies, and so the brother takes up the wife. That's conceivable. But you're telling me that there's a man out there in this time period that has six brothers and none of them are old enough to marry and yet are not married. That's not how it worked in that society. As soon as you're of marriageable age, you got married. And he had to be unmarried for this to work. He wouldn't, God never ordered anybody to take on a second wife. Hallelujah. 
I'm not worth the one I have. Not worthy of her, so God knows what he's doing. This whole thing was meant to protect the widow and the man's continued name in the tribe. And the brother to take the widow was to be single. And that makes this scenario nearly impossible. By the way, the concept of leveret marriage predated the law. You remember a guy named Ur? And he died, and his brother Onan was supposed to take up the wife and refused. And God killed him for it. By the way, their daddy was a man named Judah. It was a leveret marriage that went through all kinds of sinful activity on the way that eventually gave us Jesus. But the most famous leveret marriage, now admittedly this was not a brother that took up this marriage, but was a near kinsman. It was a man named Elimelech, and he had a son who had a wife named Ruth. The son died, either Malon or Kilion, the Bible's not clear. Malon or Kilion, they both died. And a man named Boaz stepped up and said, I'll take her. What a beautiful picture of Christ, by the way. Wish we had time to get into that tonight, a kinsman redeemer. Now, there was another man who was nearer of kin, but he refused to take on the responsibility. And so he took his shoe off. Okay. But I think underneath, Boaz was pretty happy he refused. Because Boaz took her to himself as his wife. And yet again, another leveret marriage that results in Jesus. And more, cl- more closely, David. <clears throat> now, the scenario of seven brothers dying is actually found in ancient texts. I do not take this to be inspired, but there was a story in the Apocrypha, if you're interested, Tobit 3, 8, 15, 6, 1, and 7, 11. So if you feel like going home and reading through the book of Tobit, knock yourself out. But uh, in the Apocrypha, there is the story of seven brothers that were killed by an evil spirit. And the leveret marriage kicked in. It's just, a, it's just a story, nothing historical to it. So the Sadducees present this narrative in an effort to confound Jesus, just like they probably had confounded many Pharisees. So here's basically what they're saying. If there is an afterlife, like you claim... If there is an afterlife, and if God ordained marriage, like we claim, then how do you solve this conundrum? Whose wife would she be? Predictably, Jesus handled this absurdity as easily as he handled every other challenge. So I I labored for a new title, but I can't really come up with a better one. Here's another miserable failure, part two. Another miserable failure, part two. Father, would you help us now as we look to this second miserable failure in this passage? Help us to glean from it what we need. Help me to be useful. Help me to be one who rightly divides your word of truth. And just give us a special time together tonight, we pray. In Jesus' name we ask these things. Amen. And amen. All right. The key verse in this whole passage, the key verse is verse 24. Jesus answering said unto them, Do ye not therefore err, because ye know not the Scriptures, 
neither the power of God. That is the fulcrum for this whole passage. You don't know your Bibles, and you don't have the power of God. That's why they were miserable failures. Can I tell you something? When we go away from the Bible and try to live without the power of God, we're miserable failures too. All of us are. So let's begin, first of all, by looking at their spiritual condition. Their spiritual condition. Verse 24. Jesus answering said unto them, Do you not therefore err, because you know not the Scriptures, neither the power of God? For when they shall rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are as the angels which are in heaven. And as touching the dead, they that, that they rise... Have you not read in the book of Moses how in the bush God gave, spake unto him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? We see, first of all, in their spiritual condition, these Sadducees are intentionally lost. They're intentionally lost. In verse 24, there's an interesting word, very small word. The word is er. Er. And the word er literally means to wander. They had wandered from the truth of God's word. I suspect that many of these guys, growing up in synagogue, growing up in the training that they did, probably a lot of these guys came up in little small towns in which they had a rabbi that was, he wasn't well known, he wasn't a Nicodemus, he wasn't, you know, one of the big names. He was just a faithful guy that believed Messiah was coming and loved God's word and tried to teach these boys the best way he knew how. I think a lot of these guys got a good start. But at some point, they made a decision to wander. Any time that we start diverging, from the straight line of the Word of God, we have set ourselves on a path to keep getting further and further and further away. Really, it's, it's what we would call spiritual geometry. If you have two lines going exactly the same distance apart, what do we call that? Parallel, right? But if you take one of those lines and you make it just an infinitesimal amount off of that parallel state, what happens? And it keeps getting further and further and further. Somewhere along the line, these guys willfully deviated just a little bit. And now look where they are. They don't even believe in a resurrection. I've got friends of mine that I went to college with. Guys that claim the name of Christ. Guys that went on Christian service with me. Guys that gave the gospel to other people. And somewhere along the line... They willfully deviated just a little bit. And now you won't catch them in God's house. You rarely hear them saying anything spiritual. If they talk about anything having to do with religion, it's usually critical. And it's sad. It's sad. Why? They deviated just a little. And then where there they went. Now, I'm not saying there's not room for disagreement. I'm not saying there's not room for us to see things differently. But you understand as well as I do, the fundamentals of the faith, we deviate from that. We're in serious trouble. And whenever you don't purposely anchor yourself to the word, you are bound to drift. Me and my granddaddy, 
We used to go fishing together. They had a place down on the James River, a little place called, um, well, it was Claremont. The, the big city was Claremont, and that was about 150 people. And then you had Sunken Meadows next to that. And then you had Guilford Heights next to that. That's where they were. And they lived on a cliff that overlooked the James River right dead across from Williamsburg. Had a little cottage there. I loved it. When my grandmother sold it, I grieved and grieved and grieved. And periodically, I look on Zillow just to see what that property is doing these days. I ain't buying it. It's waterfront. Let's just say there's more than 100 and some people living there now. But my granddaddy and I would get up early in the morning and uh, we'd go down to the river. And my job was to dig up mussels. You know, mussels, kind of like clams, dig them up out of the riverbed. Because that's what he used for bait to catch catfish. He had this old, this old rusty pocket knife that he kept in his tackle box. And he'd pop those things open. That's what he'd use for bait. And my job was to, uh, was to dig up the mussels. Man, I was happy to do it because I was part of the process, you know. He didn't believe in a boat. He waded out there about chest deep. And he had, you remember those old, I know none of us go to the river because we're good Baptists, but, you know, um, but uh, you remember those old lawn chairs that had the, the foam arms around them? You know, and they, they, I mean, old aluminum frames and the foam arms around them. He had one of those, and he had cut off the end of it to where it was just the arms and the little part of the seat. And he'd sit his tackle box in there, and he'd put his fishing rods on there. And, and he had, he had a, uh, a little bucket that he had poured concrete in and put a ring in the top of it, and that was his anchor. And he'd drop anchor on that thing, and that thing would just sit right there. And uh, he'd stand there and fish. Now, of course, up to him is like up to here on me. So I'm steady doing this, you know, but I'm, I'm there. Well, sometimes you forget to drop that anchor. And you get to paying attention to something else, and you look and you find out that little raft that's got all his stuff on it, way over yonder. Why? It drifts. You don't, you don't drop that anchor, it drifts. If you don't make a point to drop anchor in this book constantly you'll drift it doesn't take much it doesn't take much that's what happened to these fellows they just decided it wasn't worth it to drop anchor in the word of god they were they were going to they were going to work off of their own desires and what was beneficial to them it's interesting the, the sadducees were actually the smallest group of the jews and yet they were the most influential and, and at the time of jesus they actually were the high priest they had a lot of clout they were intentionally lost. And so what that, what that dealt to them was being intentionally lost. They were in, internally lifeless. Look at what Jesus says. Verse 24. Do ye not therefore err? You wander. Because you know not the scriptures, neither the power of God. Your carelessness with God's word has robbed you of having any power. Because no spiritual power can exist apart from God's word. If you want to accomplish things, if you want to have the wherewithal to get things done, to go on the offensive for God, you cannot do it apart 
from the word of God. You remember the, you remember the, 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 the uh, armor of God? What's the one offensive weapon that he gives us? The sword of the Spirit, which is what? Word of God. That's where your power is. And as a result, they were intentionally lost, and so they were internally lifeless. And as a result, they were intellectually lacking. Willfully ignorant, you could say. When people misuse Scripture to try and prove their point, initially it kind of irritates me. But you know what I end up at? I'm sad. They just don't know. Um, Sometimes we encounter people in our ministry here in different capacities. And we try to give them just plain spiritual truth that we take for granted, that we've been hearing for years, and it's just completely foreign to them. They don't know. These, these men were intellectual. They were smart people, but they were lacking. I mean, that's how you can have people that have, that have multiple degrees, graduate degrees and, 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 and you know, doctorates and masters and everything else. But when you talk to them, it's really qu- clear to you right from the beginning, they don't have a basic understanding of just reality. I mean, I'm not trying to pile on and I'm not trying to be unkind, but anyone that has a doctor before their name that can sit there and tell you there's more than two genders or none at all, there's an intellectual lack there. By the way, that's not the only time I'm going to mention gender in this message. Jesus actually brings it up. <laughs> Look at verse 25. You do err because you know not the Scriptures. He doesn't say because you don't believe them or you don't apply them. He says you don't even know them. You don't even know them. Now, now look at verse 26. He says, and it's touching the dead that they rise. Have ye not read in the book of Moses? Hey, fellas, you're supposed to be keepers of the law. You Sadducees say that you don't look at anything other than the Torah, and this says it right in the book of Moses, and you don't even know it. You're intellectually lacking. So we see their spiritual condition and then we look next to the Savior's counter, okay? What does he, how does he counter them effectively? He tells them they're wrong. They're wrong about three things in, in particular. Number one, hey, Sadducees, you're wrong about the heavenly family. You're wrong. Look at verse 25. For when they shall rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are as the angels which are in heaven. Now, the question is asked, are the angels in heaven gendered? And the answer is yes. There's not one biblical reference to an angel angel being anything but masculine. 
Now, I, don't, I can't say dogmatically there's no such thing as a feminine angel, but the Bible never mentions one. Okay? They're all masculine. Not for nothing, God is masculine. And there are, um, you know, the Bible does, the Bible actually has three genders. Uh oh, easy now, just follow me, okay? Masculine, feminine, and then neuter in the Greek. All neuter means is that it's something inanimate or something that doesn't call for a gender. It has nothing to do with people in the current battle we're facing in society, okay? So when you get to heaven, we're not going to be this, you know, uniform, non-gendered being. Ladies here will be ladies there. Men here will be men there. The issue, forgive me for the, the blunt word, the issue is sex. And there will be no need for the marriage relationship. Now let's be honest. Those of us that are in love, sometimes there's a little twinge in us. Well, you mean I won't be married in heaven? I won't. Well, that sounds kind of less than ideal. Newlyweds especially feel this way. Well, if I can't be married to my loved one, I don't know I can be heaven. It will be. It will be. Now, would you trust me to be careful in how I say this? When you look at marriage, there's really only one key component of marriage that, that can't be done outside of the bounds of marriage without it being sinful. For instance, um, can I spend long hours talking to people and it not be sinful? Technically, yes. Okay. Um, can I have a deep, biting affection for somebody without it being sinful? Yeah as long as it's an appropriate affection. Fundamentally, what, what sets marriage apart from every other relationship? The physical. Fundamentally. I'll give you an example. I know a fellow that uh, uh, his, his wife left him, and he never, felt that, he never felt the liberty to remarry. But he was very fond of a lady, and they never married, but they, they went out and they ate together, they spent time together, they did all, everything but move in together and live as husband and wife. There was no wrong in that. There was no wrong in that. Because they didn't cross the line into that which exclusively belongs in marriage. Okay. What is the prime purpose of that relationship? Now, we understand that there's all kinds of things that it does for a marriage. But primarily, why did God invent the physical relationship? What did he want Adam and Eve to do with it? Reproduce, be fruitful, multiply, replenish the earth. Is there a need for that in heaven? No, because there's nobody to die to replace, is it? Nobody dies in heaven, and there's there's no need to replace them. Who's there is there, and who's not is not. And the population of heaven remains the same for all eternity. There's no need for it. And so because there's no need for that, there is really no need for marriage. So here's one way to put it. Our capacity to love and to be loved will only be expanded 
in heaven. As much as I love my wife here, I will love her infinitely more there. Will it be the same as here? No. It'll be better. It'll be better. And so don't let yourself get caught into this idea that heaven is somehow lesser in experience. It's not. Will I still recognize her as having been my wife? Yes. Well, what if, what, if, what if she's talking to another man? There's not going to be any jealousy in heaven. None of that's going to be there. None of, the, none of the sinful elements of our existence are going to be there. But are we still going to have the same personalities minus our sins? Like, like if you're known for your sense of humor, will that translate to heaven? I believe it will. And it'll be even better. I will never tell a moaner in heaven. They will all be funny. I tried a couple on my Bible class today. They were just offended. And not because it was bad content. They were offended because they were bad jokes. They just looked at me like, what? Even Kyle. And if Kyle thinks a joke is bad, it's pretty bad. So he's looking at these, he's looking at them and he says, first of all, y'all are wrong about the heavenly family. It's not going to be like that at all. There's not going to be marriage in heaven. There's only one marriage in heaven, and that's the bridegroom and the bride. That's the marriage in heaven, and we're all part of the bride. Okay, so you're wrong about the heavenly family. Then in verse number 26, hey, Sadducees, you're wrong about the heavenly future too. Verse 26, and is touching the dead that they rise, have you not read in the book of Moses how in the bush God spake unto him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. They believe there is no afterlife. They believe that once death happens, that's it. And he says, I got news for you. You're wrong about the heavenly future. And the Torah confirms this repeatedly. Hey, Sadducees, you only look to the Torah? Well, then look to the Torah, and you will see evidence of an afterlife over and over and over. Can I give you two for time's sake? If God took Enoch, that happened in Genesis. Is that part of the Torah? Yeah. If God took Enoch, t- pray tell me where he took him. He took him to heaven. He took him to an afterlife. And here's the one that Jesus references here. Exodus chapter 3, Moses is out tending sheep. He sees a bush on fire. But what catches his attention is this bush burning doesn't consume. It just keeps burning. And so he goes over to the bush, and a voice speaks to him out of the bush. Loose thy shoes from off thy feet. The place where on their standest is holy ground. By the way, something just to think about just for fun in your own time. You ever wonder why God told Joshua just to loose his shoe from off his foot? It may be nothing, or it may be something. I don't know. It says, loose your shoes from off your feet. The place where on you stand is his holy ground. And he gives Moses his marching orders, and Moses finally says, well, who shall I say sent me? He says, tell him, I am sent you. Now, let's do a quick English lesson. Am. I am. What tense is that? Present. 
God dwells eternally in the present. He was and is and is to come. He transcends time. He's outside of it. I am. And he says, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. This was spoken to Moses. By the time Moses is on the planet, is Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob dead? Long dead. So then grammatically and truthfully, the only way God could have said this, if, they were, if there was no afterlife, if they have ceased to exist, God should have said, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But that's not what he says, is it? He says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What's that mean? I'm still their God because there's still an Abraham, and Isaac, and a Jacob. So Sadducees, you're wrong about the heavenly future. You're wrong about the heavenly family. And then finally, you're wrong about the heavenly father. Verse 27. He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. Ye therefore do greatly err. If somebody's truly dead, there's nothing God can do for them. Because true death is death that leads to hell. Somebody who's a believer and dies, where do they go? They go to heaven. They're still very much alive, more so than us. Is God still ministering to them in heaven? Absolutely. They are enjoying things that we can't even begin to process. And he's ministering to them. Is he ministering to people in hell? No. He's not their God. He's the God of the living, not the dead. And once again, as we touched on earlier, a God whose power does not extend beyond death isn't really much of a God, is it? If my God can't give me hope beyond this life, then you know what? Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. If there's no consequences, if there's nothing to hope for beyond this, then there's better ways to spend our time than what we're doing right now. Let's go live it up. But we know that we serve a God who is the God of the living now and for eternity. It could be that it was helpful tonight to be reminded about our heavenly family. When I get to heaven, as best I understand Scripture, I get a mansion, and so does my wife. Oh, well, I'd, I'd rather live in a mansion with my wife for all eternity. There's no harm there. I can go visit her anytime I want. You know what we're going to find, though? As much as we miss our loved ones, the first glimpse we get of Christ, we're not going to leave his feet anytime soon. But then we're going to be there, and I'll have a mansion, and she'll have a mansion, and you'll have a mansion. Is there room for all this? Oh, yeah. New Jerusalem's 1,500 miles square. That's New York to Miami to Denver. That's a big, big city. 
And that doesn't include the new heavens and the new earth that we can travel at will once all that's set up. So, you know, if you want a cabin out in the new Rockies, go for it. Go for it. It's going to be wonderful. And I find that sometimes I am very encouraged. As much as I'm encouraged by my earthly family, by all of you and by those that live at my home and everything else, I get encouraged when I start thinking about my heavenly family too. Some of the things that really excite me, I never got to meet Adrian Rogers, but I will. I will. Never got to meet D.L. Moody, but I will. I have my idea of what Peter and Paul looked like. I get to find out if I was right. And wouldn't it be interesting if I get there and Peter looks at me and says, you know, I had an idea about what you might look like. You look better than what I thought. Well, Peter, yeah, I'm sure. But anyway, I get to meet all these great saints and obviously my family that's there. Three kids that I think about constantly. I get to meet them. Here's the crazy thing. They'll know me. And I'll know them because the Bible says we'll know even as we're known. I get that question a lot. Will I know my loved ones in heaven? Absolutely. And you'll even know people you didn't know. But once again, the most important one will know who he is right off the bat. Because I believe he's the first face we see. Paul said to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Now, mom and grandma and granddaddy might be there, but my eyes are going to be fixated on the Lamb of God. You know what? It helps to think about our heavenly future, doesn't it? That heavenly family, that heavenly future. But in the meantime, let's spend time thinking on the heavenly Father who's been so good to us. Because when we take our eyes off of the heavenly family, the heavenly future, the heavenly Father, you know what happens? We start getting intellectually lacking. We find ourselves internally lifeless. And we're in danger of being intentionally lost. We drift. We wander. And then without God's help, what do we turn into? Miserable failures. Jesus tells us how to keep that from happening. Now, next week, Lord willing, um, and I'll be here. Nobody else will be. Even Bethany's leaving. So we'll have to go Church Christ on this thing and sing it a cappella, I reckon. But uh, next week, what do we got next? Verse 28. One of the scribes came, and having heard them reasoning together, and perceiving that he had answered them well, he asked him, which is the first commandment of all? Jesus answered him, the first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. That's called the Shema. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind, and with all thy strength. This is the first commandment. The second is like this, namely this. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. There's none other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said unto him, Well, Master, thou hast said the truth. But there's one God. There's none other but he. 
and to love him with all the heart, with all the understanding, with all the soul, with all the strength, and to love his neighbor as himself is more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Boy, this is a stark contrast to what he's dealt with so far, isn't it? And when Jesus saw that he answered him discreetly, he said unto him, Thou art not far from the kingdom of God. Interesting exchange there. And we'll get into that, Lord willing, next week.